Welcome back to the Stories from the Woods podcast. So today's episode is going to be a little different than in the past. We actually have a guest on the show today, uh, one that is not part of the family that's doing stories. And the story we're sharing today is from our guest, who's an author. It's Jill Samet. She's located in Michigan and has written two books and is in the works of making a third book. Jill's someone that I went to high school with. A few years ago, we reconnected our 20th high school reunion. She shared at the time that she published her first book. And it was really neat. And I remembered that. And I actually reached out to her recently because, as I mentioned on the podcast, I'd like to publish one of my stories, kind of take the experiment there and make it from an audio into an actual written story. And I reached out to Jill, remembered that she had written a story and wanted to understand a little bit more of how to, how she went about publishing it and learn some ins and outs of being an author. And I thought it would be a great idea to get Jill on our podcast to share some of her books. So the story we're going to share today is actually from Jill. The story is called The Cloud at the End of My Rainbow, and she's going to read the first chapter of that story. But before we get into the storytelling, uh, we're going to talk to Jill, and I have a few questions for her, so you're going to get an opportunity to hear from the author of the story you're going to hear today. And then we'll have links to her information in our show notes of the podcast. So here we go, the interview with Jill Samet. So I want to welcome Jill Samet, a Michigan author of two stories, The Cloud at the End of My Rainbow and When the Rain Falls. We'll talk about those stories a little bit today, but we first want to learn a little bit about you, Jill. So welcome to the show, and uh, why don't you share a little bit about yourself? Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Well, a little bit about me. I'm somebody who's always learning. I have a lot of different interests and have throughout my life, anything from animals to medicine to science to art to writing, and that's reflected a little bit in my stories. Right now, I live in Michigan. I have a lot of time spent with my kids chauffeuring them from place to place in their various activities, but I still love horses and I have throughout my life. And definitely writing is one great way for me to express myself. Well, that's great. I know you got a lot going on. I know you mentioned that you're a veterinarian, right? Correct. And you're also a teacher, so I'm sure it's a busy time for you. Getting writing in is probably a bit of a challenge for you. I think that pretty much both of the first two books were written primarily at my kids' sports activities and events while I sat on the bleachers. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's cool. Now, what, what age did you start writing your stories? Was it when you were a child? Well, I can remember being in probably first or second grade and writing my own books on whatever scrap paper was in my house, stapling them together, illustrating them with markers, and passing them out to my family. A few years later, I remember being in fifth grade and writing my first book that was never really published outside of my own house, but my mom had given me an old typewriter. This is certainly in the days before most people had computers in their house. And I typed up, oh, probably about a hundred page story. Of course, there was a horse theme there as well. And I really enjoyed doing that. Although the world never really got to see that story, 
I became a very good typist at that point, much better than my other fifth graders in my in my class or my school. Oh, wow. So for those uh, children listening to the podcast, you may not know what a typewriter is, but that was how we typed our stories back then. We didn't have computers, like Jill said. So you had a 100-page book? That's pretty awesome. I went through quite a bit of whiteout. So do you still have that story? I don't think I have a copy, but I'm wondering if maybe my mom does. <laughs> yeah, that would be really neat to go back to and look at. It was definitely interesting. I think back to the storyline now, and there were definitely a lot of things that in fifth grade I thought would totally work that with an adult size, perhaps not, but it would be definitely fun to reread that story. Yeah. Yeah, there was a story that I had when I was probably in fourth or fifth grade that I wrote. It was a much shorter story than that. And I was really bummed because I went back and looked and tried to look back in a typewriter case that I'd stored it in, and I couldn't find it. Yeah, I was really bummed about it because I could all remember bits and pieces of that story. So, yeah, it's really neat they did that back then. So when did you get started writing the story that you first published, The Cloud at the End of My Rainbow? I probably started that story somewhere around 2014. I spend a lot of time working with teenagers. I also am a parent and, a fo and I've been a foster parent for years. And through all the time I've spent with kids from babies on through the teens, I've noticed that a lot of our kids are not really represented in traditional kids' literature from di different ethnicities to different needs to different physical issues or uh, things like anxiety that I would see in my students or, or kids just that were in my life. And I got an idea for a story that I thought would be really good for a kid that was in my life at that point and decided that if there was nothing out there like this story for this child, perhaps I should be the one to write one. So at that point, I really didn't know a lot about publishing or what it took to get a book out on the market. And I spent some time, yes, writing the story, but also interviewing authors and taking them to lunch and talking to people who had been successful in a variety of different genres so I could kind of pick their brains and see what do I need to know if I want to make this book accessible to others. Okay. Wow, that's really cool. And, yeah, in the first story, um, you know, when I read that, uh, you had the character uh, M, and she has cerebral palsy. Correct. Yeah, so, so was that the character that you were trying to represent there and then build that in with other characters, with the main character being Elliot? Actually, the... The child that I was basically writing the story for was a kid that was struggling with anxiety, but through a lot of the other kids I, I saw, I wanted there to be other characters with non-traditional looks and needs and interests, and so the character of M grew out of that. I had seen a lot of, say, books marketed towards younger children that, that were picture books, where you might have a child that isn't 100% neurotypical, or you might have a kid who is dealing with a physical issue, and they always tended to be kind of look at this person and they're okay. And I wanted the kids uh, to be main characters, to be the ones telling their own story, and to have it not be all about whatever their extra issue is, 
but to just show those kids living their lives and doing the things that kids do. Okay. So I think that's really cool that you were able to do that. And then you carried that on to a second book where you had yeah most of the same characters in it, but the books are kind of independent of each other, right? Correct. You could read the second book before the first, and it should make sense. But they are interwoven and intertwined, and the second book does take place after the first book chronologically. And you get to see in the second book perhaps a little bit different sides of some of the characters in the first book. So the first book is mainly from Elliot's perspective. The second book is still sort of from Elliot's perspective, but you also hear more about her sister Daisy as well as a character, Dustin, that was shown in the first book. Yeah, I noticed Daisy was in quite a bit more than in the first book, and you had more of her perspective in the story. Well, we'll hear a little bit more about the first chapter, the first story, The Cloud at the End of My Rainbow, later in the episode. As far as books go, are there other stories that you, you've had an interest in writing or different types of story or age groups? Because, you know, I think you're really trying to target that tween age. Mm -hmm. Well, I have thought about writing perhaps for teen readers since I have spent a whole lot of time with teens over the years, perhaps targeting an older market, perhaps a book for adults. I... Ironically, I spend a lot of my personal time reading nonfiction, but I see myself re continuing to write more fiction. So I could see myself expanding to different age groups in the future. Okay. So for your children, you know, mom's an author. Do you ever get the question, will you tell me a story, mom? And what type of stories do you tell them if you do? If when they were much younger, I would definitely get the question about stories a lot more often. Now they know that I write. They know that I have books out there but they are not super interested in uh, perhaps knowing every bit of my author craft. I do have one daughter who writes stories on her own as well and would like to write stories in the future, but to them I'm just mom, so it's not anything particularly exciting or special to them at this point. Yeah. Well, that's neat that one of your daughters is interested in writing, though. Obviously has someone to... Uh... Uh, ask questions if she needs to, but I'm sure because you're mom, she might not be asking. Yep, I'm, I'm not all that exciting when you see me every day, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, So this podcast has a lot of little short stories, and it's probably geared more towards the elementary age. Anything you'd like to share with the children listening to this podcast in terms of inspiring them to write, or just anything in general at all that you learned in life? Well, I would say sometimes elementary school in those tween years even can be really tough. And one of the things that I would say is all those things that make you kind of quirky and weird in those years usually turn out to be your best assets. So uh, I've spent a lot of time with kids who were perhaps not so thrilled about a physical feature or not thrilled about some particular interest they had that wasn't appreciated by their peers. But what most people find is that as they get older, those unique attributes, those things that perhaps set them apart from their peers when they're younger in an unusual way become the things that people want to hire them for as adults or that people find the most interesting in them as they get older. So I'd say be true to yourself and pursue whatever it is that's your passion, even if it's not something that is perhaps super popular. So be true to yourself and embrace those things that make you a little bit different. 
That's a great point. Thanks, Jill. That's uh, very true. Without a doubt, when you try to be somebody else, um, it's actually a lot more difficult and you don't feel so comfortable. All right, um, before we get into the story, just a couple more things. I do recall you mentioning to me for the podcast that you were working on a third story that kind of builds on the first two stories with the same characters. It does have the same characters, and it also follows several of the characters as they head into that sixth grade middle school transitional time in their lives. It also gets more into Dustin's story and a little bit of his backstory. So it kind of follows chronologically. However, it will probably also be one of those books that you could have read out of order, and it would uh, work as a standalone book as well. Okay, great. So, Jill, if anyone's interested in your books and want to read them, where can they find more information about where they can buy them and where they can find more information about yourself? Well, the easiest way to purchase the books would to be to look on Amazon for When the Rain Falls or The Cloud at the End of My Rainbow, and they certainly will come up in a search. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search for The Cloud at the End of My Rainbow, and you'll see links to current events as well as how to order the books. I'm also very responsive if you ask questions or have any interests and want to know more about the books or the author or anything else on my Facebook page. This is especially fun for classrooms as well if you have questions. It's a great way to interact with me, and I love hearing from people. All right, great. And we'll also post that information in the show notes for the podcast episode as well. This way you can find out where to buy those books and find more information about Jill. So, Jill, you're going to read us the first chapter of your book, The Cloud at the End of My Rainbow. Can you just give us a little background on the story? Obviously, the first chapter is going to give a lot of insight, but I think it helped just to give a little bit more information about the story. So, the story follows Elliot McIntyre. She lives on a horse farm that's owned by her mother. She could ride dozens of show horses every day, but she finds that she's actually kind of terrified of animals. Uh, unfortunately for her, her younger sister, Daisy, is a championship-winning rider. And although her sister kind of fits into the family, Elliot somewhat feels as though she might be a bit of an outcast. She'd much rather be spending her days sewing or working on art projects. She ends up meeting a young pianist who moves into the neighborhood, and they end up striking up a deal where Elliot will overcome her fear of horses, and her friend is going to try to overcome some of her fears as well. And it follows their story. In the first chapter of the book, it follows Elliot, where she's kind of gotten herself into a little bit of trouble. So Elliot has a lot of emotions, and sometimes they get her into a little bit of trouble here and there. So this first chapter is going to kind of introduce you to the character of Elliot, as well as to the new girl who moved into town, and tell you kind of a little bit about their outlook. All right, thanks for giving us that background. One thing that definitely stuck out for me in that first chapter was uh, a pumpkin-throwing incident. It was somewhat humorous, but at the same time, it wasn't the right reaction for um, Elliot to take. But it was uh, definitely a part that stuck with me. Sort of the wrong thing for the right reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're going to have Jill read the first chapter of her book, The Cloud at the End of My Rainbow. But before we do that, I want to thank Jill Samet for joining us today on our podcast. Thanks for taking the time to share your information and your stories with us. 
and let us know when you get that third book done. Chapter 1 from The Cloud at the End of My Rainbow by Jill Salmon My feet dangled off the overstuffed chair in front of the principal's office. It was the worst day of my life, only it was the best day of my life, too. I didn't know it at the time, but on that lonely, embarrassing, horrible afternoon in late October, I met my best friend. Back again so soon, asked Mrs. Tyson, the office receptionist. She looked over her small, wiry spectacles with disapproval in her eyes. I was hoping that we might put off another meeting until at least November. I was used to the waiting game in front of Mr. Addison's office by now. In just over a year's time, I had frequented the office of Autumn Grove Elementary School's assistant principal more times than I would care to remember. There was the time I had stood on the table of the school lunchroom and yelled at Adam Myers for taking my last chocolate chip cookie, the day when I accidentally on purpose tripped Bryce O'Connor after she made fun of the scarf I needed, and Mr. Addison is ready to see you again, Elliot, called Mrs. Tyson. I made my way to the office. The chair in his office was hard and metallic, not at all like the comforting plush one just outside the door. I took a seat. Miss McIntyre, I understood that there was a problem on today's field trip to Meadowland Mills, Mr. Addison began. The annual fifth grade visit to Meadowland Mills was a big event, at least for me. The entire grade boarded school buses and spent the whole day at the complex. Meadowland Mills encompassed a working cider mill, pumpkin patch, historical village, running locomotive, and a theater. Most of the student body had been looking forward to the outing, at least since first grade. Students drank cider, ate donuts, chose pumpkins, visited shops, and attended a comedy and magic show. Yes, I remembered the theater. That is where my otherwise fine day had taken a distinctive turn for the worse. I'd like to know what happened. In your own words, the assistant principal continued. Why, I'm sure Mrs. Kennedy and the chaperones have already told you. Am I going to get suspended, I asked. I didn't understand why he wanted to know what I thought had happened. Surely he had talked to my teacher. Mr. Addison had probably already called my mom and decided on a punishment before hearing my side of the story. Perhaps mom was on her way to school right now. Go on, he prompted. It wasn't my fault, I protested. Mr. Addison raised a bushy eyebrow as I felt the anger rising again in my small frame. Well, pumpkin throwing is usually confined to the catapults at Meadowland Mills. Why don't you tell me exactly what happened, right from the start? I shifted uncomfortably in my seat and began. The day had started well enough. Edith's mother, Mrs. Jones, was chaperoning my group. I had known Edith like most kids at Autumn Grove since kindergarten. Edith had curly red hair and glasses like her mom. She had come over to my house several times in the past. At least she didn't annoy me as much as some of the other kids. Paisley Patterson lived down the road from Edith, and the two had been best friends since second grade, when they both had the same teacher. In addition to Edith and Paisley, our group included the aforementioned Bryce O'Connor and a new girl. With shiny black hair and pale smooth skin, I didn't really know much about the most recent addition to Autumn Grove. Teachers called her M or M or something like that. Mostly, though, the other kids in the class tended to call her Wheels. I guess I should explain. The new girl often used a walker to move from place to place. Some days, however, 
she used a purple wheelchair to get around the school grounds. Our small group was directed to a special bus that could accommodate the new girl's wheelchair. It took a bit longer for all of us to get settled into the bus because of it. Grace groaned a little bit, but I really didn't mind. I ended up sitting nearest the new girl on the 45-minute bus ride. So Ellie, right? Is that short for Eleanor, she asked. Ellie is short for Elliot, I replied. Oh, the new girl looked down at her hands. Uh, what is your name? I know a lot of the kids call you Wheels, but that can't be your real name. That would be, I trailed off, not quite sure how to continue. Instead, I turned and looked out the window. The new girl was unfazed by this. Ironic? Awkward? Yeah, I guess it would. Most adults call me M, but the kids call me Wheels. I have cerebral palsy and sometimes like today. I primarily use my wheelchair to get around. It's the closest thing I have to a cool nickname. I guess it fits me better than Lightning or Scar, she smiled. I guess, I said, trying to get a good look at the chair without being too obvious about it. It was bright purple, a contraption with shiny silver wheels. So what do you do for fun, Wheels continued. Well, I really like art, I offered. I paint, knit, sew, draw. I enjoy just about anything artistic. In fact, I decorated these sneakers. I lifted one foot nearly up to the level of my head. I had dyed the previously white shoes several shades of purple before adding silver beading and embroidering an E on each heel. The laces were primarily silver, but I added some silver and copper-colored beads at the end. When I walked, they made a slightly metallic noise that I appreciated. My sister Daisy found the noise annoying. That made me love the sneakers even more. That's great, said Reels. I'm not particularly artsy myself, but the shoes are really great. Do you play any sports, I began. Uh, I mean, yeah, I run track, she said sarcastically. I must have appeared panic-stricken. Really? That's great. I'm kidding. You are so serious. I don't really run track, but I'm into music, she smiled. I like the way Wheels smile. It isn't often that a fifth grader gets to eat donuts and drink cider on the average school day. I worried that the whole pumpkin patch bit would be somewhat juvenile, but even that was fun. Wheels couldn't make it all the way into the designated patch area, so I helped her find just the right pumpkin. She kept pointing to ever-larger pumpkins, attempting to find the biggest one she could comfortably accommodate into her chair. I chose a small, lumpy pumpkin. I felt sorry for the little thing, quite certain it would be overlooked by the others and miss its opportunity to become a jack-o'-lantern. I guess I had a soft spot for misfits. Later, our group headed over to the theater. We were directed to an elevator in a special seating near the front of the stage. The area had a spot with regular folding seats where Wheels could park her chair. I sat next to Wheels with Paisley, Bryce, Edith, and Mrs. Jones to my other side. Our seats were so close to the front that I could practically touch the stage. Soon the lights dimmed and the music swelled through the theater. A tall man in a black cape and a top hat appeared from behind the curtain. I am the amazing Mr. Ace, Master Magician, he cried. The audience applauded. The amazing Mr. Ace ran through a series of card tricks before making a bouquet of flowers appear from his top hat and breaking free from a set of padlocks. I had to agree the act was really quite good. Now for my next act, I need a volunteer, the magician called. Hands shot up from all across the room. I noticed a young boy 
possibly an upper elementary kid from another school district, sitting quietly farther down the front row. Go, Dustin, called the other children in his group. Dustin sat still, trying to blend into the back of a folding chair, as a classmate grabbed his arm and waved it wildly in the magician's general direction. The young boy with fair skin and soft blonde hair turned nearly three shades paler. With great fanfare, Mr. Ace turned and looked him square at the eye. You, young man, shall be my first assistant today, he announced. The crowd groaned in disappointment as classmates pushed, cajoled, and encouraged Dustin to rise from his seat and join the magician on stage. I need a young lady next, cried Mr. Ace. Again, hands waved frantically, some students nearly standing on their seats in an effort to be noticed. Finally, after much consideration, Mr. Ace settled on an enthusiastic sixth grader with braids and a bright smile. After introducing downtrodden Dustin and the exuberant Jasmine to the audience, Mr. Ace began an illusion involving a series of metal rings. The ashen Dustin held the rings as directed while Jasmine waved a wand, assisting Mr. Ace in a series of magical gestures. I don't know if that is such a good idea, I mumbled to no one in particular. What, whispered Wheels, I couldn't hear you. Uh, I hadn't anticipated anyone actually hearing my remark, and I struggled to put what I was feeling into words. That boy, Dustin, he doesn't look so good. I really don't think his classmate should have pushed him to go on stage. I was close enough to see beads of sweat forming on the boy's face. Well, he could have just said no, remarked Wheels. Just then, with bright light shining on the trio on stage, a familiar sound erupted. It was the distinctive reverberation of a noisy fart. Everyone in the audience paused briefly before bursting out into hysterics. From where I sat in the front row, it was obvious that Mr. Ace was purposely making the noise, but acting as though it were coming from Dustin. Woo-wee! Sounds like Dustin had beans for lunch. They are the musical fruit, the magician called. Dustin bit his lip willing himself not to cry. I could tell he was gazing upward, trying to keep the tears from falling. Rip! Another imaginally fart erupted on stage, much to the delight of the crowd. Dustin was losing it. As I watched in horror, big salty tears spilled down his cheeks. I could easily imagine the humiliation of such a public incident. Memories of the chocolate chip cookie fiasco were still fresh in my mind. I didn't even realize what happened at first anger rising in me like a thundercloud. But before I knew it, I was standing, my diminutive, misshapen pumpkin gripped tightly in my hand. I swung my arm and threw it with all my strength. The lumpy pumpkin whizzed past Mr. Ace's ear. It came dangerously close to the magician's face before sailing into a prop behind the trio. The large fruit was moving so fast when it hit that it didn't have a chance. The potential jack-o'-lantern split into pieces with a deafening thud. You are mean, Mr. Ace. Don't you make fun of him, I shrieked. I couldn't stop now. You are making that noise. It wasn't Dustin. Just stop it. Without even thinking, I reached into Wheel's chair and grabbed the pumpkin. My sweaty hands wrapped around the big, heavy, aerodynamic pumpkin that we had spent all of our time in the patch meticulously choosing. No, squealed Mrs. Jones. She could see where this was headed and dove towards me. But it was too late. With strength that belied my small stature... The pumpkin sealed from my grasp, hitting Mr. Ace squarely between the eyes. In a moment, it was over. The magician was out cold. You are lucky Mr. Ace wasn't seriously injured, I heard the assistant principal say. 
It could have been much worse. What if it had taken more than a quick trip to urgent care to make things right? Well, my dad works in trauma at the hospital. I suppose we could give him a family discount or a coupon or something, I quipped. I thought we learned that bullying was wrong in that school-wide assembly last year. Wasn't I just helping to prevent bullying, I continued? That was not the point of the assembly, and you know it, Elliot. Violence is never the answer, he said sternly. Just then my mom entered the office. I could tell she was there before I even turned to greet her, the smell of horse still fresh on her clothes. Mrs. McIntyre, it seems Elliot is having trouble demonstrating appropriate behavior again. Please sit down. Mr. Addison said. Turning to me, he added, Please take a seat outside of my office while we talk, Elliot. Hi, Mom. Sorry, I mumbled as I walked past her. In truth, I was more upset about the potential punishments that awaited me at home than Mr. Ace's level of consciousness. I was only too happy to leave the confines of the office and return to the squishy chair outside the door. Mrs. Tyson looked up from her computer every few minutes to throw a stern glance my way. I suppose she wondered if I would chuck one of the miniature pumpkins decorating the main office at her. I could hear Mom and the assistant principal talking, even if I couldn't make out many of the exact words. Mr. Addison was relaying the story with Mom gasping and expressing concern at all the right moments. I put her in this position quite a bit and felt badly for it. Over the years, Mom had become practiced at explaining away my sometimes erratic behavior. I thought back to other difficult situations she had encountered. Hi, Mrs. Tyson. The sound of Wheel's voice woke me up from my daydream. Hello, Em. What do you have for me today? asked the receptionist. These envelopes are from Mrs. Bates, replied Wheels. She wheeled herself past my squishy chair and towards the desk. Thank you, dear. Just a moment. I'll be able to give them back. Mrs. Tyson headed around the corner to examine the contents of the envelopes. In one quick motion, Wheels backed herself up and turned to me. That was great, she whispered. Huh? I didn't know what was so great about sitting in the main office and having a parent called to the school. The magician, Mr. Ace, shouldn't have embarrassed that kid. You were right. I wish I'd had the guts to throw a pumpkin at him. Actually, knocking him out might have been a bit overboard, she trailed. Sorry about your pumpkin, I said quietly. Mrs. Tyson finished and made her way back to the front desk. Wheel smiled sweetly, retrieving the envelopes from her. Thank you, Wheel said. You're welcome, Mrs. Tyson replied. As she scooted out of the office and back to class, I heard her laugh. In our time at school together, it was the first time I had ever heard Wheel's laugh. This concludes Chapter 1 from The Cloud at the End of My Rainbow by Jill Samet. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check out all of our episodes on our podcast and subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And don't forget to leave us a review. And as always, continue to listen to our next episode. This podcast features the song A Dinner and a Rabbit by Mute Stare, available under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License.